Well, Merry Christmas and welcome to part two of our series on the original Christmas carols. We are looking at the songs that are scattered throughout the Christmas story, sung by the characters of the Christmas story. And most people aren't aware that there are songs in the Christmas story. Um, the only Christmas songs we know of are things like O Holy Night, Silent Night, and um, whatever the one that Mariah Carey sings that just, what is it? What is it? All I want for Christmas. Yeah, that one. I don't want, yeah, I know it. I know it in my head anyway. It's in my head because it's like drilled into your eardrums every Christmas. Her and Michael Buble everywhere you go. Um, but there are, believe it or not, four songs in the Christmas story um, in the book of Luke. He records these four beautiful songs. And if you missed the first week, which was two weeks ago, when we talked about the Song of Mary, you can always go check that out on our website. Um, but what's interesting is... Um, you don't really have to have been here the last week to follow up with this week, because this week we're looking at a song sung by a man named Zechariah. And just like you maybe didn't know there were songs in the Christmas story, most people don't know about Zechariah, a guy named Zechariah being in the Christmas story. Um, because weirdly enough, pretty much everybody else in the Christmas story except for Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth kind of made it into cultural common knowledge made it into the manger scenes that we put in front of our trees or in, in our living rooms at Christmas. Uh, we know about Mary and Joseph and shepherds and wise men and, and angels. But Zechariah and Elizabeth and their little bit kind of gets left off uh, the storyboard. It kind of gets skipped over. And they are going to end up being the parents of John the Baptizer, who would kind of pave the way for Jesus. And he would be Jesus' older cousin, older relative of some uh, sort. We're not exactly sure of the relationship. Uh, the word that's used to talk about the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth is kind of just a general term for relative. Um, but John would be about six months older than Jesus, and um, their story might not be as popular, but it is just as cool, just as beautiful as what God does in the lives of Mary and Joseph. Um, but before we get to the song of Zechariah, we kind of need to read the story because most people don't really know it very, very well. Um, but it opens the story of Luke. Luke starts by giving like a little introduction, and then the story starts right in where we're going to pick up today in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. So Zechariah is actually like the start of the Christmas story. So it says, In the days of King Herod, king of Judea, Oops, sorry. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, this is helping set the stage for anyone who would have read it in the ancient world. It says, There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Um, so there's probably uh, some stuff in there that didn't make a whole lot of sense, and that's okay. Let's kind of break it down a little bit. Um, first, about the incense thing. Every day, morning and night, a priest would go into the holy place of the temple, clean off the incense altar, fill it with fresh incense, and light it so that there was always incense burning in the temple. Um, and 
And uh, there was a whole, whole lot of priests in Israel. Uh, one estimate I read was like there was around maybe 18,000 different priests. Um, so that's a lot. Uh, they couldn't all serve at one time, so they were divided up into divisions. You saw that his uh, division was the division of Abijah. Um, so that just denotes like his group of priests. And um, being in a priest, like in a division, and serving as a priest was a little bit like being in the National Guard. They served two weeks a year, like one week at different times. So they served like one week, like six months apart. And they would be on duty for that week. And so it was their division that would handle all the priestly duties in the temple, keeping it clean, making the sacrifices, all that stuff. And they would do that for that week. Then they'd go back to their families and come back six months later. And so it was their turn. Now, because there were so many priests, they had to find a way like, okay, whose job is it to go in it? in the morning and at night, to light the incense, because it was kind of a special thing. Um, and so there were too many of them, and so they cast lots. That's, think, rolling dice. That's pretty much the ancient, it was the ancient equivalent of rolling dice. And so they would roll dice, and whoever, they'd set it up to win, um, you know, that, that person got to go in and light the, the, uh, the, the incense on the altar. And it was a huge deal. Like, a priest maybe only got to do this once in their entire life. A lot of guys never even got to do it. So when it was your day, it was a big day. Like, it was your moment to walk into the temple and to the special place that not very many people got to go, and you got to do this. So this is like Zechariah's big moment. Now, when we think about rolling dice, we call it an act of chance, right? It's it's a way for us to get humans out of the way and let just the physics of the universe take over, and let it be random, okay? But in the ancient world, they didn't look at how the dice fell as a random act of physics. They saw it as a way for humans to get out of the way so that God could reveal what he wanted to do. That's how they looked at this. And so they looked at it as if God wanted Zechariah Zechariah to be the one to go in the temple in this moment and do this. And so... um, As we read on, we're going to see this isn't random chance. God really did choose Zechariah because he had something up his sleeve. He was at work. He was doing something. Let's keep going in verse 11. So Zechariah goes in. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. So he goes in, and while he's getting everything cleaned up and ready to light the new incense, and he's, you know, all alone, because everyone else had to leave when he were making this offering. They were on the outside praying. And so he's in there alone, but he wasn't alone. An angel shows up. And he had the same response of anybody else in the entirety of the Bible when an angel shows up. Absolute fear. Like, that's just the common thing. Um, you know, I think, I think about it, like, in their perspective um, a little bit. Because I think in our world, we've gotten way too used to, like, special effects in movies. And we've been to magic shows. And we've seen all kinds of stuff that in front of us, we're like, that's not real. But it's cool. It's not real, but it's cool. They didn't have a category like that in their brains. This glowing, perfect angel showing up in your presence and just boom out of nowhere, it would have been an utterly terrifying thing. I think we would also be terrified, um, just not in the ways that we would expect. And so this angel comes and tells him that he, that God has heard his prayers and that he and Elizabeth would have a son. 
Now, we learned earlier that Elizabeth says, said uh, he and Elizabeth were advanced in years. That's Luke's way of saying they were a bit older. Like they were, they were past the age of being parents, and they were well into grandparent territory by this point in their lives. That's what Luke is saying. And, and you know, we look at this kind of stuff, um, and we think, okay, that maybe they just didn't know how things worked back then. But no, the ancient people were smart. 2,000 years ago, people had the same size brains that we do. They knew the birds and the bees. They, they knew how this worked. They knew who typically had kids, and they knew that people with gray hair typically didn't have kids. And so that's where they are. And so the angel shows up and tells him that they have had these prayers that they've been praying their whole lives for a child. And God heard every single one of them. And you got to think, it says that Elizabeth was barren. Um, for a lot of people in the world, that, they, they usually looked on that as, you know, you hadn't done something right. Like, you weren't blessed by God enough. Something was off in your life because God didn't bless you with a child. And yet here, he's saying for those years, probably even decades, that you and your wife pleaded for a child and you heard nothing, that God was really hearing every single one of those prayers. And so they probably thought, though, that God had said no, but God didn't say no. He was really just saying uh, not yet. And so long after, they'd probably even given up. I mean, because again, they're well along in years. They had probably not prayed for a child in some time. In fact, once you get a certain age, you're probably like, oh, Lord, don't let us have kids now. Like, I'm too tired for it. Like, they, they were probably to that point. And so um, the angel says, all those, all those prayers all along, God has been heard you, and he's been saying yes all along, but he was working on a different time frame than what you had envisioned. And so we go after the angel says, here you go, you're going to have a kid, verse 14, he picks up, the angel says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, go before God. So this new baby will go before God in the spirit and power of Elijah. Have we heard that name already this morning? Remember what we read earlier at the beginning? It says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I like how he doesn't say his wife's old. Like He's like, I'm old. She's advanced. Like I like that he's smart. See, I told you, they were smart in the ancient world. Even then they knew. Okay, and, but, but he kind of still has this reply to this angel like, I mean, come on. I mean, we've prayed for years. We give up hope of this a long time ago. Like, he's kind of got this perspective of, I will believe it when I see it, which is the wrong answer, the wrong response to this angel. Because then the angel comes back and says, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, meaning I'm a big deal. What I say is what goes. And so you don't get to question what God has said. I mean, he's kind of a little bit like indignant here. He says, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, 
And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So there was a normal amount of time that it usually took to do this offering. And he's taken a long time and they're thinking, what did he do? Did he fall asleep? Like, what's going on in there? And it says, and, he, and when he came out, he wasn't able to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and yet remained mute. So if you remember back to Mary's story, when Gabriel says, you're going to become pregnant, and she's like, but how? I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? Um, the angel deals so gently with her. He's like, here's how it's going to happen. He answers her. I have no idea why when Zechariah says, how is this going to happen? I'm, I'm old. She's advanced. How is this going to happen? And yet the angel is, Gabriel's kind of nice and gentle to Mary, but Zechariah gets like a punishment. Like for nine months, he is going to be completely silent. Maybe on the side, Elizabeth had been praying that God would shut her husband up, and this is just God hearing another one of her prayers. I don't know. The only real assumption that I can come up with is that maybe um, we're supposed to just assume that he's asking out of doubt where she was asking out of curiosity. So even though the words don't really tip us off as to what was going on, the, Gabriel's response can kind of tell us what was going on here. But either way, Zechariah did not speak for nine months until John was born. Can you imagine any situation more frustrating than having the most amazing story to tell? A story that will top anybody else's story and beat anything else that has ever happened to them or that they've ever heard of and not being able to say anything about it. What a frustrating thing for him. Um, how many of you, when you were kids, ever got jinxed? Anybody? When did that come around? Okay, how, I don't know how long. I, me- I remember having it to me. If you're unfamiliar, basically, if you and a friend or your brother or your sibling said something at the same time, one of you would say, jinx, and then that person would be unable to talk. And what's really funny is we play these little games when we're kids, right? There's, like, there's no laws about this stuff. Like, no one's going to come and haul you off to jail if you talk while you're jinxed, right? But yet we acted like it was just, like, eternally binding. Like, it was just this thing that could not be broken. In fact, last night, Eleanor, she's sick, so they're not here today, but she was on the couch. And I don't even know why. I was just sitting there snuggling with her because she didn't feel good. And she just, at some point, goes, Dad, what happens if you talk while you're jinxed? And I was like... Nothing. Absolutely nothing happens at all. It's just a made-up game that we all play. We all just act like these rules are a deal. And she was really concerned, though. But you got to think about what just happened to Zechariah and what got what like load of news got dumped into his lap. Okay, well, one heard, hey, now that you're old and tired, here comes a baby. Um, he heard, um, your son is going to be a great prophet filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we don't say, but John is going to also be the last prophet. And then he learns that The Messiah is coming. This long-awaited, centuries-waited Messiah is going to come, and John is going to be the one who kind of rolls out the red carpet for him. And so he knows all these huge things, can't say a word about it, is trying to use hand signals and whatever gestures he could come up with because American Sign Language wasn't a thing then. Sign language wasn't a thing then. And so he finally, though, after nine long months, when John is born, can let it out. And so he does so by singing a song that he's probably been writing in his head for nine long months. Saying, well, when I finally get to say something, it's going to be good. Okay, he's probably going to let it go. And so here's the song of Zechariah starting. We jump down through the story because we break off because after we find out this stuff's going to happen, then we learn that Mary's going to have a baby and then 
we get Zechariah's story a bit later, or his song later in verse 67. So, John is born, says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn of salvation would be like the, the horn that was blown as an army came to uh, attack another city or something, or the horn they blew at the end as a, as a sign of victory. Okay, He's like, God has raised up this horn of victory, of salvation for the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. These people have been waiting for a Messiah, a Savior, an anointed person from God to come and save all the people for centuries. He says, and that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, which was in Genesis. Okay, Thousands of years of Old Testament history. They've been waiting on this promise that God made to Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So then there's a bit of a shift. So this has been like praising God, and then there's a shift where he kind of makes a prophecy about his son. He lets loose what the angel had told him. It says, And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so he has this beautiful song where he, two-thirds of which praises God for his faithfulness to send that long-awaited Messiah. Because again, after you, ha- you wait so long for something, you, you think, ah, maybe it's not coming after a while. But what's interesting is that his, uh, Zechariah's situation, it kind of mirrors what was going on in the people, right? Because him and his wife, they spent decades, their whole lives, praying for a child. No answer. Nothing happened. Just silence on God's part. Waiting, waiting, waiting for a promise that seemed like it would never come. The people of Israel had been promised a Messiah, Their only memory of it, because it was 400 years worth of generations before that the last prophet had spoke. They were just relying on what their family had told them and passed on to them. They'd heard of this promised Messiah for their entire lives. They'd waited and waited and waited and thought, well, it didn't come for the last 10 generations. Maybe it's not mine either. Got to keep waiting. Got to keep waiting. And yet all this time, God has been hearing. All this time, when the waiting comes, they thought they got told no but God had just said, not yet. All this time they've been waiting. And how many of them must have given up hope? Because I'm sure every generation thought, maybe my generation's the ones who are going to see this happen. Maybe we're the ones that are going to see this Messiah come. And then they got old and they passed away and thought, no, maybe it'll be my kids or my grandkids. And so a lot of these people had probably thought, I'm not going to live during this amazing age. I just got to, I live in the, the waiting period, the in-between. And they thought that they had, this silence meant no. And they'd probably given up hope. And, you know, it's so, it's so painful because I think the reason we give up hope is because when we lose hope 
slowly, and you wait, and that hope just kind of trickles out, trickles out, trickles out until you get to your breaking point. I think that is a crushing experience. And my guess is that everyone in this room has had prayers that they have prayed that went unanswered. And I don't mean like you got a definitive no. I just mean you prayed and it just felt like God didn't hear. Like your prayers bounced off your bedroom ceiling when you were praying them at night before you fell asleep and they didn't get where they needed to go. And because when you get a no, again, at least you get a definitive answer. But when it's silence and silence, you just wait for anything, looking for any indication that maybe God is working to answer your prayers. Maybe you've prayed for someone in your life to give their life to Jesus. You've got people in your life that you love and you want to spend eternity with them on the new earth when Jesus comes and restores all things. But you've prayed and you've waited and, and, and you've talked with them and it, and it just doesn't seem like they're any closer to giving their life to Christ than when you started. Maybe you've prayed to be healed from something going on in your life. Maybe you've got a chronic disease or, or a pain that's come on with old age. Um, maybe it's an old injury that's just never really quite gotten better, and you've prayed, God, let this go away. God, let this be healed. Um, maybe you've prayed for transformation. Maybe you've had some junk, some sin that's kind of hung over your head and it just never seems to get better. It messes up your life. It, it's been messing it up for a long time. You know it's not God's will and you want it to go away and it just seems to be this constant dark passenger as you go through life. Whether it's you can't stop drinking or looking at stuff online or you shouldn't look at or you can't stop gossiping, you can't stop lying, can't stop being selfish. It's this thing that, you never, that never goes away and you thought, maybe being a Christian will fix me. And you thought, okay, great, This'll, I'll give my life to Jesus, he'll clean me up and it'll be automatic and it'll be fine. But that hasn't really been the case. And far too often when we pray these prayers and we're met with silence, our first reaction is, come on. God, what's wrong with you? We look up and we shake our fist and we act like he's cruel, he's neglected us, he's not listening. Because when that hope runs out slowly, it's heartbreaking. And we often don't really know what to do with it. Because we kind of have this belief that Jesus is just our genie and we're supposed to be able to pray what we want. And if we pray what we want, and maybe we do the right churchy things, have a good enough attendance, put enough in the offering, if we do the right churchy things, then he'll answer our prayers. But that's not how a relationship with God works at all. And so I think, though, that it's in those moments when you feel hope trickling out, when you've prayed over and over and over again, and nothing has happened, nothing but silence, I think it's into those moments that this story speaks the most powerfully. Now, let me be clear, I am not going to say that God answers every prayer eventually. That's not what Scripture says. That's not the promise we get. Um, because um, God often says no. And sometimes he says no in ways that we just don't hear. We just, that was the answer and the opportunity or the thing we wanted just never comes. But that's what any good parent does. Any, no good parent tells their kid yes every single time they ask for something. And most of the time, parents say no, their kids don't understand why. In fact, most of, I think probably the most common word parents ever say is no. Like sometimes I wonder, like if I just had like a running counter of like the top 10 words I've ever said in my life, like I guarantee no has got to be at the top of the list. Like I don't think it was before I became a parent, but I think like it is like 
head and shoulders above all of the other words I've said in my life. They ask for everything. Abby and I joke that um, James's life phrase is, it doesn't hurt to ask. Because it doesn't hurt to ask. He'll ask you for anything. He is so bold. Like, hey, can I come to your house today? No, you don't invite yourself over to, hey, can I come to your house for dinner? Hey, can I have a sleepover? Doesn't matter. He'll ask anything. Can I have 20 bucks? He doesn't care. He, he doesn't care. And he doesn't care if you say no. It doesn't hurt his feelings. He's just thinking, doesn't hurt to ask, right? So we say no all the time, right? Um, and so, um, but again, every parent says no. And most of the time, kids don't understand why. They don't get it. When you tell a little kid over and over again, they don't know. They don't understand why you won't let them eat candy and junk all day long right? Um, older kids don't understand why you don't want them to be on a screen all day long. They say, no, I don't, why? I just want, there's more YouTube, my video's not done. They don't understand why. They don't understand why you won't let them watch the movies all their friends say that they've watched, which I don't believe all their friends have watched all the things they said. They, James came home and said, um, all the boys in sixth grade said they've tried the one chip challenge. How many of you have heard of the one chip challenge? Yeah, you buy these little chips, right? If you watch people try those on you, watch a YouTube video of somebody trying that. Grown men are broken by the one chip challenge. Ain't no way all these little white kids in New Berlin have done the one chip challenge. So I don't. I think they're just you know trying to puff out their chests a little bit. But but when you say no, you can't do these things. Like yeah, they don't understand why. I remember being 15 years old. My dad bought a 19, I think it was 80 or 81 Corvette, black Corvette, to fix up and resell. And I thought, I'm getting ready to get my license. What a perfect gift from God right into my driveway. <laughs> and I said, what, Dad, what if you and I fix it up together and then I can have this car when I get my license? And my parents were like, absolutely not. And I was so mad. I did not understand why my parents would not want this brand new inexperienced driver to not have a car that is designed to be fun to drive at criminally wrong and dangerous speeds. I didn't, I just, I, again, and I'm 15. You could have explained that to me, but I couldn't get it. All I thought was, this is what I want, and I want it so bad. And sometimes when God answers, no, that's okay, and it's for our good, and we just have to trust and move on with our lives. But sometimes we think God has answered no when that is really not his answer. And we can get so set, I think, on our picture of what we want our uh, how we want our prayers to play out, and when we want this thing in our, to come into our life. We get so set on the picture we've built in our brains that when God answers it at a later time or in a way we never expected, we can miss it. Because surely God's not going to give a baby to an old man and an advanced woman. That's not how, God, that's not how this stuff works. No, God gives babies to young people who have energy and who who dumb to too dumb to know that they'll never sleep again. It, yeah, that's who God gives babies to. Like, and so they didn't understand. He didn't understand. And so I, I wonder how often God has answered our prayers in ways that we've just totally and completely missed. Uh, for those of you with chronic diseases or pain and struggles, and you've prayed, God, let this go away. It hurts. I'm suffering. God, let this go away. Um, and your idea is that you want this to be completely removed, instantaneously to feel 100% absolutely good and pain-free. And if that doesn't happen, you think, God, he's mean and he wants me to suffer. What's wrong with him? Why would he do that? But if you think about it from God's perspective, if you are a Christian, God has already set you up to enter into a life with a brand new, imperishable body once this life is over. And so from God's perspective, God is saying, 
okay, yeah, so I didn't take away that pain for the last 40 years of your life, but I did take care of it for the next 40 trillion and then some. And that's not a no. That's just not being answered in the way you want it to. I wonder how many collective tears people in this room have cried for the people we thought we were going to marry who broke our hearts. I mean, how many... I was a freshman in high school when my first girlfriend dumped me. I was utterly and completely devastated. I thought I would never love again. I thought my one chance at happiness had passed me by. Um, I was laughing with my mom recently because not too long after that happened, like my brother got married. And on the morning my brother was getting married, I was the best man at like 15. I couldn't even drive him away from the wedding because I was too young, right? And so, um, but I was just like crying in my bed because my heart had been broken and that life was never going to be fair again. I, all this stuff was so, I, I was so con- convinced, right? And I look back on that and I'm like, oh, you, you dummy, like, obviously that's fine that that happened. It's fine that God didn't answer your prayer that you would marry this girl. Like, it's fine. Like, but in moments, we can't see that. And you think, I'm grown up and I'm not like a dumb 15-year-old who got his heart broken. I can see that. No. In, in, in a lot of ways, when we want something so bad, when we, when we ache for it, we cannot see what could possibly be better about God doing it in a way that's different or at a different time. And so there's these moments in life when God is going to answer our prayers in times that we don't agree with and in ways that we don't see coming. And we have got to be people who trust that when we pray and don't see an answer, that God is either, he's either said no because he loves us or he's said, wait, I've got something so much better in store for you. And we have to be people who realize that God is always working for us, even when we can't see it. Always working for us. So we can have hope even when our prayers get answered with a clear no, or because it, we don't hear anything, because we know he's good to us. Um, I, I, I wonder why that is so hard for us. You know, I've never read a verse in the Bible that says God's going to answer every prayer. Have you read that verse? No. I mean, most preachers don't get up on Sundays and say, hey, God's going to answer every single prayer, give you everything you ever wanted. You want a million dollars? Boom, you got a million dollars. Most preachers don't say that kind of stuff. But we, there's something off. We just want something so bad, that, uh, and, we, and we get so convinced that we're right and that we, we, what could be wrong with giving us what we want. And, you know, God, if I won that billion-dollar lottery, you know I'd be generous with that billion dollars, God. So you, what could be wrong with giving me that billion dollars? It's, I'm, the, I'm kind of a selfish person. That A billion dollars would probably ruin me. Like, I would probably self-implode. Like, all those other people, I think, why well, wouldn't be like that, dummy? I would probably be just like everybody else that's ruined their life. Like, so we've got to be people who understand and give God the benefit of the doubt when he says no. And so we come here to the Christmas story, and it is a story of hope. Because it's a story of a prayer answered in a way that nobody saw coming. Nobody thought God would come into the world. They thought God would send like a powerful person. Nobody thought God was going to come. And if God was going to come, surely the heavens would crack open. And, some, and he'd come stomping into the world with power and might. And everybody would be afraid like when the angels showed up in front of them. But nobody expected God to show up in the form of a normal little baby born in the backwaters of the 
nation of Israel, nobody saw any of this coming. God was answering their prayers in a way that was so different than what anybody had expected and at a time that was utterly and, and, and beautifully perfect. And so Zechariah shows us at this song that was boiling inside of him for nine months, he shows us that we can have reason to praise God even when our prayers don't get answered in the way that we think or when we think they should get answered. And so hopefully we can learn from Zechariah to give, uh, not give up on hope and to give uh, God trust and the benefit of the doubt because he just might show up and do something amazingly unexpected. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the hope that we have um, in Jesus, that you sent Jesus into the world at the right time, at a time when um, the message of hope and the good news that he would bring of his, uh, of his death and resurrection could really go to the whole world and could take root in a way that changed history. We thank you that Jesus came in a way that a lot of people missed, but it was no less miraculous, no less beautiful, no less amazing. And I pray that we would look at these stories and, and, and stories where you do something that is unexpected and you give an older couple a newborn child and you help uh, uh, this young girl um, who's a virgin have a baby and then you, you trust her with the most important person that would ever walk the earth. When you do these things that are so out of the ordinary and so unexpected, I pray that that would build us up with trust for how you work so that we would be a people who don't give up hope when our prayers are met with silence but we trust you to answer no when no is the right call, and we trust you to answer yes when it's the right call, and we trust you to, to take what we've prayed and, and bring it about in ways that aren't what we expected at all because you're good and you're loving and you're kind and you're powerful and you see more than we see and know more than we know. So help us to be people who trust and have hope in this beautiful season when we are remembering the events around the birth of Jesus. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.